The New Year is always a good time to check in with the rest of the world. But with the state of journalism in our country these days, it seems like it's getting harder every year to keep up with our world. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Major TV networks have closed most of their overseas bureaus, and as one of America's leading journalists tells us, international news coverage in America needs a boost. You need to pay sustained attention to a story. And you need time to understand foreign places. They're so complicated. NPR's Steve Inskeep assesses the media landscape for foreign correspondents and what it takes to keep us informed about our world, coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. Later in the hour, we'll check in to hear what travel plans listeners have for the year ahead, with or without a passport. And Fred Plotkin inspires us to see Vienna with a whole new light. The Viennese, we think of them as being whipped cream and, and Mozart and waltzes. It is all that. But it's also a city that even today is very cutting edge. Let's enjoy the world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Vienna offered the quintessence of good and modern living at the dawn of the 20th century, and it still rates as one of the most livable cities in the world. We'll hear why it's one of Fred Plotkin's favorite places coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. And our listeners inspire us to explore new places in the year ahead. But first... Steve Inskeep from NPR's Morning Edition helps us evaluate the state of today's media to see what it takes to have a society that's well-informed about the rest of the world. In so many ways, we travelers function these days like the medieval jester in the Middle Ages. We get out there, we get out of our comfort zone, we leave the castle, we find out what it's like outside of our borders, and we come home and we tell the truth of what we learned. Of course, That makes us travel writers a little bit of journalists, but there are people who do this for a living. They're fundamental to our democracy, and they are correspondents. We're joined by Steve Inskeep. He's the co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, the most widely listened to radio news program in the United States. Steve spent a lot of time overseas, functioning as a foreign correspondent. His new book is Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. And I want to talk just a little bit about the state of journalism and foreign correspondence as we try to better understand our world. Thanks, Steve, for joining us. Glad to do it. Steve, you've worked as a journalist in the developing world, trying to bring an understanding of our world home. What's your take on the state of journalism right now in the United States uh, from a foreign correspondent's point of view? Oh, it's been a tough time to be a foreign correspondent, Rick. I mean, I don't know that there's been a golden age necessarily in the past, Um In the 1990s, there was uh, very little demand, it seemed, for foreign news. There were not all that many news organizations that sent foreign correspondents everywhere. And there wasn't a big news hole for foreign news. We were all interested in, I mean, the United States was the center of the world, and we were interested in our booming economy and things going on here. After 9-11, that changed dramatically. And for a number of years, there was a huge interest in foreign news. I think there still is a huge interest. And that's one of the reasons that NPR's audience has grown and grown and grown, because we're so committed to that. But since the financial crisis and the difficulties of the last few years, a lot of news organizations have closed foreign bureaus, closed their entire foreign staffs. I work with an editor now on Morning Edition and he previously worked for a newspaper news service. He was the foreign editor. He had a dozen guys that he supervised around the world, and one day the newspaper chain just closed the whole thing down, fired everybody, and that's normal. And so we have this situation where it's still extraordinarily important for us to understand the world around us, but there aren't quite as many resources, quite as many outlets available to get firsthand accounts of what's going on around the world. So how do news networks get their news if they don't have as many foreign correspondents out there sending it in? I was about to say they fake it, uh, but that wouldn't be fair. I mean, news organizations have tried to find ways to be efficient. And instead of having a high-priced correspondent and a high-priced TV camera crew in Moscow, maybe they'll hire one local person to be a producer, to just be ready to marshal some resources if they need to. And in all fairness, I mean, the TV networks and newspapers and so forth can get you the big story, the dramatic story. You know, when there is the Arab Spring, when there are uprisings in Cairo, when there is a spectacular television story, we still get to see it, don't we? I mean, the correspondents will show up. The hosts will show up. Uh, You can go see Anderson Cooper. But do they just show up? Are they just pretty faces showing up or are they actually on the ground working? Well, that's that's kind of what I'm driving at. I mean, I think that they, you know, parachuting in, that sounds so negative. I mean, there was heroic work done Mm -hmm. in Tahrir Square in Cairo. But the point is that they will do a fine job covering that white hot moment. But really the meaning 
of an incident like that is to be found over the long term. You need to pay attention over the long term. You need to pay sustained attention to a story. You need time to understand foreign places. They're so complicated and they're so interesting, really. It's a great, great story to go to a foreign country and try to learn about it. But it takes time. And news organizations don't necessarily have the time and correspondents don't. It's an economic thing, isn't it? It's an economic thing, yeah. They'll be there when there's white-hot attention and when there's competition for ratings, but then they go away. I got to say, that reminds me of, I'm from Seattle, and we have a struggling baseball team called the Mariners. I've heard of it. Once upon a time, we had a very high-priced superstar called Alex Rodriguez. Mm-hmm, yeah. And A-Rod sucked up all the money, and we didn't have enough money to buy the rest of the team. We had a superstar, mm. but no more team. Um, it seems like it's expensive to have a a Brian Williams or a Katie Couric, and the money's got to come from somewhere. Are networks actually making the choice? I don't know how many correspondents' wages would pay for a famous anchor person, but is there a correlation there? First, uh, I follow the Yankees, Rick, and uh, I think th- at this moment uh, there are probably some Yankees fans who would be happy to give you Alex Rodriguez back. <laughs> right. Sorry, A-Rod. He, he's done great in some ways. But that's a fair question. There are a lot of millionaire TV anchors. There was a lot of resentment, I think, at CBS when Katie Couric got a big contract at the same time they were cutting. There have been instances where it's gone the other way. Peter Jennings, who was for many years the multimillionaire anchor of World News Tonight on ABC, there was an occasion that I remember years ago when they were going through difficulties and he renegotiated his contract that he would give back some of his salary if they would preserve some correspondent slots. There you go. So, I mean, people can try to be thoughtful and creative in that way. Another interesting thing is the morphing of network news into becoming, rather than doing a service for our society, of being essentially entertainment, owned by entertainment companies, viable because enough people watch to have advertisers pay the price for their ads. And does that put news into a position where it's got to be more entertaining just to be viable? Well, yeah, there's there's this constant competition for for attention. And I'm not sure that all of it is, is that smart. Cable television, which I think is mainly what you're complaining about, the audience for cable TV networks over time has gone down and down and down. They are struggling desperately to hold on to their audience. And the more they struggle in many cases, Hmm. the more audience they lose. And there are a few news organizations, and I'm happy that that NPR and, and public radio stations across the country are among them, that have taken a different approach and have had confidence that the audience is smart and wants to learn about the world. And we have to work hard to make it entertaining too. We have to be entertaining too, but you can take your audience seriously and assume that they are curious and interested in the world. And I've noticed that public broadcasting has done fine. Public radio has done fine. The New York Times, in spite of the economic catastrophes of the newspaper industry, has come out the other side and seems to be doing okay. The New Yorker magazine, as other magazines have fallen off a cliff, The New Yorker, the most serious of all magazines, but also entertaining, Uh, has been profitable in the last few Hmm. very difficult years. And so there is an audience for those who are willing to grasp the world and take a look around and get their feet dirty and get their hands dirty and then just report what they learned, report what they saw. I was speaking with somebody who works overseas for CNN, and he told me that his take on this is that Now, in order for most uh, news networks in the United States to be profitable from this entertainment point of view, they have to be either playing to the left or playing to the right. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, yeah, it does. It does. And I actually want to advance that debate and advance the thinking on that a little bit. I've given a lot of thought to this in the last couple of years. You're exactly right that you, know, you, you have people who have made a lot of money with a conservative point of view. There are people who've made a lot of money with a liberal point of view. I'm not terribly comfortable placing myself anywhere on that kind of spectrum. I don't want to be judged that way. I don't like to be judged that way. Now, there is another approach to news that has also been derided lately, which is described as the voice from nowhere, meaning you're supposedly some disembodied person with no perspective on anything, just kind of a stenographer of facts. I don't agree with that approach to news either. And what I would like us to be as journalists, actually is a voice from somewhere. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean from the right or the left. 
because I think that's kind of a false scale, a false construct, a false idea of the complexity of us as human beings. I'm from somewhere. I'm not from nowhere. I'm a guy from Indiana. I'm a guy who grew up as the son of school teachers. I'm a guy who got to know middle America very well. I'm a guy who went to college at Moorhead State University in Kentucky and lived in New York for a while and has been overseas to places like Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and Egypt and Colombia and has been privileged to have so many interesting experiences and I'm continuing to learn and I want to learn how the world works and I want to meet interesting people and I want to introduce them to you and I want to give you a chance to hear what their life is like and what their ideas are and probe and challenge and question them from my perspective, above all as an American. I'm an American and I'm proud of that. And I bring that perspective to my reporting, but I want to be open-minded and to listen to all kinds of people and bring back valid information as opposed to propaganda to you day after day. And that's what I get a chance to do in my job. What is the role of journalism in a well-functioning democracy? I would like to think that journalists are the public's intelligence agency. And let me explain exactly what I mean about that. Uh, let's set aside any criticism that people may have of the CIA and, and their nefarious dealings over the years, whatever. But let's just talk about what the CIA fundamentally is there to do. It is there to bring independent information and evaluations of information to the president of the United States and his closest advisors. That's their job. And in order to do that, they go to all kinds of unpleasant places around the world, and they don't just talk with people who agree with the president or people who agree with the United States. In fact, it's far more important that they go and talk with people who disagree and who oppose. It's far more important that they observe those people and know what they're doing. And I would like to think that as a reporter, that is precisely my job for citizens, for my fellow citizens. I go as a citizen around this country or outside of this country, and I talk to all kinds of people. And they really should include a lot of people with whom you personally disagree, because the whole point is for you to hear the whole perspective of what they're doing. You want to keep up on what everybody's doing, those you agree with and those you disagree with. I want to listen to them. I want to track their stories, and I want to bring back reliable information about what they're saying, thinking, and doing. I'm your intelligence agency if I'm doing my job. Steve Inskeep, thanks for your work, and thanks for your passion for quality journalism. Oh, thank you, Rick, and thanks for what you do. Next up is Vienna. Then we open the phones to hear about your travel plans. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's travel with Rick Steves. Mehlika Seval, Mele from Turkey. Now I'll give you a tongue twister in Turkish. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Which means, one barber to another barber said, 
become barber. Let's open up a barber shop in Berberistan together. Bir berber bir berbere bira berber gel beraber Berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Wow. <laughs> That was good. Vienna was once the capital of a vast and mighty Habsburg Empire, and while its political power is long gone since it lost World War I, it's still the home of a rich Habsburg heritage, and it's one of Europe's most livable cities. The emperor may be gone, but that culture is still king, and when we think about enjoying the culture of Europe, Vienna certainly has to be high on your list. I know Fred Plotkin agrees with that, and Fred is a, an aficionado of, of European culture. He's written guidebooks on opera and on Italian cuisine, and uh, for Fred, Vienna's a very important stop. Fred, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You write that sometimes you just need a good dose of Vienna. What do you mean by that? Vienna is, and I can say this publicly, I know people think of me with Italy, and that's absolutely correct, but outside of Italy, it's my favorite city in Europe. And it ranks with New York and Buenos Aires among my three favorite in the world. Here is a city of about two million people that was built on the idea that we can enjoy life. We share life over wine. And by the way, this city grows more wine grapes in the city limits than any capital in the world. And that all of it has to be abetted deepened, contrasted by culture, by philosophy, by ideas. It has had a history of phenomenal cultural achievement, occasionally and sadly terrible prejudice that has underlined and often persecuted the, the hatred of certain artists. But this contrast and flow of ideas, never easy, nonetheless has created an environment that even today more than ever, is bubbling with ideas, culture, modernity. The Viennese, we think of them as being whipped cream and, and Mozart and waltzes. It is all that, but it's also a city that even today is very cutting edge. You know, when you think of cutting edge, I just think one of the most dramatic sort of cutting edge times was during the early 1900s, the end of the whole notion of divine monarchs and the Habsburgs. And in Vienna, you had all this literature and philosophy and architecture actually physically in a showdown. You'd have modern buildings staring down the, the facade, the Baroque facade of the Habsburgs' palace. Well, don't forget, living in Vienna at that time and then sadly driven out of Vienna about 20 years later was Dr. Sigmund Freud. He's the person who redefined the passions of the mind. He met local patients. He looked at the Viennese society. He observed people at play, at work, in restaurants. And out of that, he's the man who defined why we do what we do, what human impulses are about. So Vienna is a city that launched the way we see ourselves more than any other hmm. place. In that context, people would create things of great beauty but they also had to be functional. So we think of Baroque swirls, but Vienna's the place that created the clean lines of Jungenstil, the young style. Mm -hmm. It's the city that pioneered design of housing for artists in the 1920s. It's a city that promoted forward-looking artistic creation. We know Mozart, Schubert, Haydn, Beethoven as the first Viennese school, but the second Viennese school of music, Schoenberg, Berg, and others, were the ones who completely turned music on its head, created the 12-tone scale, and invited the people to look toward the future in music when everybody else was still stuck in the 19th century. I wonder how much all of this embrace of life and passion for the future and everything has to do with the fact that they were once basically the ultimate superpower in Europe, and then they lost that, and maybe they realized what's more important. Well, I think in part, we have to go back to about 1740 when Empress Maria Theresa took the throne and she ruled until 1780. She's the person who fostered love of the arts. She commissioned painters. She had buildings built. She taught royal cooks to express themselves in food. Every aspect of the human experience and the pleasure experience in life was something that she promoted 
and not just for the ruling classes. And that's the main difference, say, between there and Paris or London. In Vienna, everybody could partake of the culture. It was the first place to have schools that trained people in crafts so that wherever you went, people learned how to make things, to do things. Everybody was productive. And because a violin could be played in a church, it meant that anyone could have contact with music. Therefore, she democratized culture. She democratized Mm. art. So moving all the way forward, that tradition was there no matter what the political situation was. And ultimately, when the Habsburgs fell at the end of the First World War, what the people were left with was their cultural heritage. And it was from there that they picked up again and they understood that to move forward, we need to advance our culture, not just live in the past, but advance it. And what then happened, all the tragedy of World War II Certainly, Austria was completely on the wrong side of that. But nonetheless, when they came out of that again, the people began to gather their wits and rebuild their society by building on the culture. Now, even today, as a traveler, you can enjoy this passion for making high culture accessible to the, to the common people. There are art galleries all over Vienna. We don't think of the city necessarily as a city of painters and artists, but Klimt was there and Sheila and many great artists gathered, visual artists gathered in Vienna, Kokoschko being another. So that galleries all the time are showing new works by the next generation of artists. There are little music scenes, not only the Vienna State Opera, but places where people are performing, writing and creating new music. Even if you go to the Stadtpark, the Stadtpark is sort of the central park of Vienna, you find statues of musicians, but underneath that you find people creating performances. It's rather remarkable, this creative impulse is there in everyone. Every time I go to Vienna, I just find there's sort of an ongoing festival, and it doesn't even have to be a festival as such. I know that at pretty substantial expense, I think, they... They turned the whole park in front of the city hall into a concert hall for 60 nights in a row in July and August. They've got a 60-foot-wide screen, 3,000 folding chairs. There's a big food circus there with 20 or 30 stalls. And the city pays for this. And I was talking to an official there, and they said they're just really wanting to make sure young people get exposed to classical music. And uh, this is just one more example of how, even in tough economic times, they will prioritize for this. Austria is a nation of 7 million people. I live in New York City, which has more than 8 million people. You have to imagine that this little country with this amazing artistic heritage could make itself a generic country like all the others, or it could be the citadel of culture. But to do that, every citizen needs to learn the value of it, not from a snob point of view, Mm -hmm. but from an identity point of view. Hmm. And what I love about the Austrians, if you go to Salzburg, which is a more conservative city, they nonetheless tolerate some of the most radical way-out theater productions because they understand that like it or not, understand it or not, we have to move forward with culture. And that is so amazing when you compare it to many American places where the traditional arts such as opera and classical music are treated in a museum-like way rather than a let's-move-the-culture-forward way. Finally, we're getting around to that in places like the Metropolitan Opera, but it took a long time. I love that whole notion that it's not to be put in a museum, but it's to be enjoyed and reinvigorated with a new generation and so on. When you think about Vienna, you've got the Vienna State Opera and you've got the Vienna Philharmonic in the pit. I mean, it's like the all-star game every night of the year, and they make 300 performances a year. Apparently, they they make a point to have different performances on successive nights, even if it means a lot of extra moving stage gear around so that people can enjoy all of that variety. And at the same time, they go to great lengths to make tickets available to students and paupers. I mean, what, for $5, you can get a standing room spot up on the top to hear some of the greatest opera in the world. Well, actually, in the state opera, it's not on the top floor. The standing room is in the back of the main level. And the tradition there is that you have to get there very early and you bring a scarf and you tie your scarf to a pole or a place and that indicates that you've reserved it for yourself. That's how you know it. And a lot of Japanese come with beautiful scarves. And a lot of local students enjoy a lot of great music on a student's budget.
True. Another thing I want to point out is that after performances in Vienna, people just don't go home. They go out and eat and they talk about it. Now, the wealthier people might go to a fancy restaurant, but there's a wonderful little Wurst stand that sells something called a Käsekreiner. Käsekreiner is sort of a sausage with cheese in it. And people stand there after the performances, eating those and drinking <laughs> beer or cider and debating the opera performance for another hour and a half, including many of the standees. Those versed stands are just great community centers, and you see people even in the cold of winter standing together deep into discussion about whatever they've enjoyed. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. And Fred Plotkin writes a guidebook to opera called Opera 101. He's got an incredible guide to Italian cuisine. And he's uh, got a website, fredplotkin.com. Fred, I know you like music and I know you like to eat. And a lot of times we confuse Viennese cuisine with rustic Alpine cuisine. But you write that you have a different experience with enjoying the food of Vienna. Well, one book I would love to write, but it's been hard to persuade publishers is a Habsburg cookbook. In other words, the Habsburgs ruled over an empire that now is made of 15 different nations, ranging from the Baltic all the way down to the Adriatic, east to the Black Sea, west to Milan, and they drew all of these culinary traditions into Vienna, as well as the flavoring and the spicings. Viennese cuisine is about being delectable and pleasurable rather than hearty, heavy, like Alpine food. And there are many wonderful dishes that reflect the cultures of all of the empire. This little restaurant I like in Vienna called the Goulash Museum, where they have 15 different types of goulashes based on recipes from different parts of the old Austro-Hungarian empire. It was funny to hear you say you're trying to sell your publisher on the notion of a Habsburg cookbook. Habsburg just doesn't have much of a marketing sort of success story in our country, I guess. But uh, I understand Let's what you're talking about. Let's call it whipped cream cookbook. <laughs> now, that would work. <laughs> Talk about uh, the Heurigen, this uh, wonderful Heurigen. new wine festival in the wine gardens. All right. Now, how many places are there in the world where you can get on a streetcar in front of the state opera and 20 minutes later be in a winery? And not just one winery that's there for tourists – But the whole edge of the 20th district of Vienna is hills with more than 700 hectares, that's like 2,500 acres, of planted wine grapes that are produced as wine. And all of these different wineries have restaurants called Heudigen, where you go and you drink the local wine, you eat delicious food, you hear music. One of them used to be where Beethoven lived. They all have history. Schubert used to go out to the Heutigen and compose. You could think that these are touristy, and a couple of them are, but most of them are really favored by the Viennese. And if you want to encounter them enjoying their lives, you just get on the streetcar and go to the Heutigen. I would never miss that experience in Vienna. Take us on a walk through the Naschmarkt. The Naschmarkt is in the 4th District. In Paris, they have arrondissement. And in Vienna, they're called Bezirk or District. By the way, there's an old joke that Vienna is Paris without the French and Paris is Vienna without the Viennese. The the cities are very similar and they're somewhat rivals. I love them both. But the Naschmarkt reflects the 15 former republics and countries that are part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And you walk through there and you find magnificent spices, beautifully prepared foods. There's one man who's a vinegar maker. Vinegar, not just for salad, but as a condiment for all things. So that you might have a quince vinegar or you might have a rosemary vinegar. And the Viennese use vinegar as a souring note, which is not to say that the dish is sour. But if you have fatty pork and you add a bit of, say, apricot or plum vinegar, it takes out the fat, gives a touch of the flavor. It's a remarkable experience. And it's right in front of the Théâtre an der Wien, this great opera house, and Beethoven lived right there. So when you walk through there, imagine that he, too, walked through the Naschmarkt. He didn't (laughs) like food. It was interesting. He probably was so focused on his music that he didn't pay attention. But we do. And walking through the Nashmart, Nash means eat. 
Yeah. You can discover very quickly how the Viennese heat. I met a guy who was like evangelical about sauerkraut there. How could you not be? <laughs> yeah, and uh, you're right. If you always didn't <laughs> like sauerkraut, wait until you get to Austria. Or coffee. That's what I preach about is the coffee in Vienna. Well, let's talk about coffee because I know Starbucks oh. went head-on-head head with the ultimate coffee culture by putting their lead opening outlet right there across the street from the Sachertort Cafe. And there's a, quite a discussion in Vienna about American chain coffee or the local coffee. Well, I definitely think that Austrian coffee is superior because it's more delicate. It doesn't have the burnt taste, exaggerated taste, as Starbucks often does. But the roasting of Vini's coffee, which really comes from Trieste, if you think historically, Trieste, now in Italy, was the main port of Vienna. If you remember the sound of music, Captain von Trapp is in the Austrian Navy. Where did the Austrian Navy go? They were in Trieste. Mm. And all the coffee beans arrived in Trieste. They were roasted to be smooth, to be mild, fragrant, aromatic, a bit cinnamony, not that they add cinnamon, but just they would have that note or a touch chocolatey. Mm. And they so beautifully refined the roasting process that when you drink a cup of Viennese coffee, the most famous brand is called Julius Meinl. It's heaven, and it goes perfectly with Viennese pastries. And the Viennese cafes are just a beautiful experience uh, from a pastry and coffee point of view and just from an ambience point of view. It's sort of the neighborhood living room, and they, they're really experts at, at creating that, that whole experience. I'm always astounded at a Sunday morning in Vienna. What, what do you do to enjoy a Sunday morning in Vienna? Well, Austria is a Catholic country, and they have churches that play beautiful music. Uh, St. Stephen's Dome is the most famous church in Vienna. I like the Thomaskirche, which is where Mozart worshipped. And you would go there on Sunday mornings, and they're always playing Mozart. And that's a wonderful way to start. And then I walk through the Hofburg, the gardens there, past the stables of the Lipizzaner Stallions, and I go to the Kunsthistorisches Museum, the Great Art Museum of Austria, where they have a Sunday brunch. And I sit down and have a course. Then I go look at some paintings. I come back for another course. I go look at more paintings. In Austria, in Vienna on Sunday, you slow down. Everyone slows down. Stores are mostly shut. And therefore, you connect with yourself and you connect with history. Fred, at least in my dreams right now, I am on a plane to Vienna. Danke schön and auf Wiedersehen. Bitte schön und auf Wiedersehen. Up next, we'll check in with you, our listeners, at 877-333-7425 to hear your travel resolutions for the year ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's check in with our listeners right now to hear about your favorite places to travel and what you're enjoying about the big wide world. We're at 877-333-RICK. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Sasha's on the phone in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sasha, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I was calling to talk a little bit about missing travel. Um, when I was younger, I got to go to a lot of different places around the world. I was fortunate to live in uh, France and Luxembourg. And in my adult years now, I'm in Oklahoma, and I don't get to travel very much. And so I've solved the problem with stovetop travel. My family and I are going uh, around the world in our imaginations by eating one meal from every country in the world. Stovetop travel, I love it. Yeah, uh, called the Global Table Adventure. Each week we try something from a different country. We're going in alphabetical order so that um, there's no preference given to size of country or popularity of country. Okay, so you're, you're strictly following the A through Z list of countries, and you study up uh, any way you can about, you know, Algeria or whatever country you're dealing with, and then mm-hmm. you go shopping and you bring it home and travel through your stovetop. Yeah, and, it, and it's been a really great experience because... I've been able to speak with, um, actually not just through books, but I've done research by speaking with people all over the world. I've started to make friends. You know, people are so passionate about food from their culture, and so they're very excited to share with me recipes from their families, and it's made the experience so much richer. In Tulsa, you find people that are from different parts of the world, and they can help you out? 
Oh, yeah, and, well, it's all on our website. So my readers from globaltableadventure.com, they come and they email me and they send me things. So I've even made pen pals around the oh, world. Oh, so this is actually, you have a website. Yes, yes. Uh, it's globaltableadventure.com. And uh-huh. that, the reason I did that was because I wanted to share it and raise awareness for other cultures, you know, to respect for other cultures. Oh, this is brilliant. So you're motoring this, and then people can go to globaltableadventure.com and connect with people from different cultures who are proud of their cuisine and share some ideas. Yep, and each week we try a few different things from each country so to get a full perspective on it. And my little, my daughter's two years old, so she was a big inspiration for it. I wanted her to be able to experience um, other cultures. And right now, you know, they say it's the formative years. Oh, you know it. Our kids, we we exposed our kids to cuisine of different countries from the time they were that age, and it makes a huge difference. But what about your husband? Oh, my husband. Well, he's kind of been nicknamed Mr. Picky on the website because (laughs) um, (laughs) when I met him, it's pretty amazing, actually. He grew up in uh, rural Oklahoma, and he didn't know what an eggplant was. He had never had fresh spinach. So it's been, for him, a really amazing journey um he's gone from not not even understanding what sushi was to trying it he used to look at food and just based on what he saw not want to try it and now he's very curious and interested and likes to talk about what the flavors are and things wait we've promoted a lot of websites over the years on this show and i'm really enthusiastic about repeating this one globaltableadventure.com and then you can tap into that and get ideas for whatever country's next on your strict alphabetical run through the countries and their cuisines. Are you able to find the ingredients you need in, in Oklahoma or wherever in the United States uh, to put these meals together? Well, and yes. And in fact, I, I limit myself to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't do any mail orders because I feel like it should be mm-hmm. accessible to people in sort of medium-sized cities because sort of my goal is to have recipes that moms around the world are making with toddlers hanging off their dresses, you know. So I have little international markets I go to and then also the farmer's market and just the grocery store, and I'm able to find everything. In fact, I found uh, fermented locust beans from Africa at a little market here in Tulsa. So it's been... You know, that's one good thing about our modern world and globalization and everything is you can find these ingredients that I would imagine two generations ago, no way. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and the Internet has changed everything. Like I said, being able to reach out to other right. people who are passionate about so cooking. So where are you now on your trip through the world uh, from your uh, stovetop travel? What what country's up this week? This week we're cooking Kuwait, so we're almost exactly halfway through, actually. There's 195 countries, and we're just shy of being at the halfway mark. And every week you do a different country? Yes, yes, every week. So that's about four country. years of beautiful travel through your stovetop? Well, it's Global Table Adventure, yeah. Wow. And the reason I call it Global Table Adventures is because um, I feel like in order to create peace, we have to invite everybody to sit down together at a global table. Um, you know, everybody has to join in and, and share. And one of the things I feel is really important is a positive message. So when I write about the countries, I always share positive stories. There's enough outlets for the negative. Do you invite and, friends over, or is this just a family affair? Yes, we have friends over. It depends on the week and what's going on with our lives, but we uh, recently had a big dinner party when we did South Korea and we did bibimbap, which I went to a little market and found the bowls that you heat up on your stovetop and then you fry your rice at the table in your oh, own that's bowl. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so we've done some really fun things with friends. Yeah. Do you remember the, the past meals? I mean, you're in K now. What did you do for Iceland? For Iceland? Well, Iceland was a funny one. We, I did one thing, which was a sort of a fun little quick recipe uh, where you take rhubarb and you dry it out in the sun, which in Oklahoma we have some really hot summers, you dry it like a raisin, and then you can put that in baked goods. Okay. Yeah, and then we did uh, like a bread soup. I'm glad um, you... I just wondered if you did the rotten shark, because that oh. might end your husband's interest in stovetop travel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, we definitely didn't do that, but I did mention it. Oh, and we did a blueberry cardamom ice cream, which was delicious. Nice. Yeah. So when you think back on the letters A through K... What's a couple of your favorite discoveries, you personally, for food that you would have never known otherwise? Well, I think what has been really intriguing are combinations that I maybe wouldn't have expected to like. For example, um, actually just this week with Kuwait, we did a tahini and date syrup mixture, which is a dip there. And I personally, before this adventure, didn't like tahini very much. I'm not really sure what it was, but something about the bitter flavor. Well, when you mix it with date syrup, it tastes an awful lot like peanut butter and jelly. 
which huh. is really unusual. So what was exciting about that was, okay, it was simple, but also it was just, it opened my mind to a different way to eat something I had yeah. never, you know, thought I would like. You probably gain an appreciation of how different cultures fit their environment with mm-hmm. their cuisine. Oh, sure, yeah. And, and you know, I, I like the dishes that bring everybody around the table, like that bibimbap where we cook it in the bowl. So you oh. actually will eat the way people do in that country. So it'll be with your fingers in Ethiopia, with chopsticks in Japan and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, in fact, my daughter, at two, she's using chopsticks, which is super cute. Um, you know, she has them tied together at the top, but she can pick up her edamame and all that. Do people learn about the uh, recipes and the ingredients and so on right from the website? Yes, at globaltableadventure.com they can go, and I have a menu with, uh, it has breakfast and sweets and organized okay. like that. So, they can so really you've got 195 it. countries in alphabetical order with the, with the recipe and the ingredients for each, and this is stuff that people can reasonably cook in, in Spokane or Topeka or, or wherever. Yes, and in fact, one of the most popular recipes, just to give you an idea, is from Ireland. It was the Guinness chocolate cake with Bailey's buttercream. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, you know, it's all very straightforward. I, um, I love the eyes, all the countries that start with the I. Mm. Oh, yeah. In Indonesia, we did a, India. Uh, a wonderful fried rice breakfast dish, nasi goreng, with a fried egg on top. They call it cow's eyes. Nice, so. nice. <laughs> hey, Sasha, you've got a, a peace and uh, understanding kind of initiative, and what a clever and beautiful way to do it, to celebrate the cuisines of our world through 195 different countries. Once again, your website, globaltableadventure.com. Yes, thank you so much, Rick. Okay, bye. Jeannie's on the phone in Weston, Florida. Jeannie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hey, how are you doing? Great. It's great talking to you. I really enjoy your show. Thank you. What's on your mind from a travel point of view? Well, I just wanted to mention to you that when my husband and I travel, um, we just kind of get ourselves into the city, and then we just kind of walk around and try to figure out what's going on just by looking at the pace of the people. And uh, we do a lot of our travels on foot once we land in a a major city. Um, We'll use public transportation. Uh, My husband, of course, likes to take cabs out to dinner, but we'll use uh, some of the local transportation just to get around. And I called uh, to comment on Paris when we were in Paris, Uh, what an easy city it is to walk around. Uh, We were quite surprised how close the subway stops are. So you really don't need to go underground to go four blocks. You can, you know, just, uh, you know, walk. The best thing to do is to get a, a city map and just kind of study it and look at it and find out where all the sites are and, before you know it, you're walking around, and as you uh, turn a corner, there's one of the museums you wanted to visit, or there's a site that you had heard about, or a store, or a shop. I also wanted to comment, uh, you had a show a few weeks ago about uh, Paris and transportation, and I wanted to add that there is a wonderful form of transportation if you're there uh, during the summer months. It's called the Bato Bus, and I think it runs between April and October, and it goes up and down the same, and it's like... You know, on and off, you get daily passes, and you can buy like three or four day or five day passes, and it's just really a great way to travel up and down, get off, visit the sites along the way, and just enjoy the people on the Bado bus. It goes up and down the Seine River, and it, it works like a, a, a city bus, stopping at various uh, right. uh, docks along the river, and you found that practical from a sightseeing point of view. Yes, and if you're tired from walking yeah, around, it's very, and go you know, down, get on the, <laughs> and it gives and you relax. a little, it gives you a little exposure to the the beautiful quay and and the the riverside there in Paris. You know, it's so interesting when you talk about just walking to get to know a town. I've been going to Paris all my life, and this last summer my, my little sister came over there, and it was her first time in Paris, and she was going to be there for a while. But I, I spent the first day with her, and we just wandered aimlessly. I knew she'd see the museums later on, and I was, Bye. considering how much I've seen Paris and so on, writing a book about it and whatever, I was in major, important, beautiful, exciting neighborhoods that I had never been in before, simply walking. And, of course, you have your little uh, map from the hotel in your pocket, but I found uh, beautiful neighborhood maps are posted on a lot of corners near the metro stations and so on. So you could kind of, when you see a map, stop and see what's nearby, and then just wander wherever your spirit takes you, and it's uh, quite a nice experience, isn't it? It was wonderful. One evening while we were walking, it was kind of drizzly. We were anxious to, to find a cab. We couldn't find a cab because you have to go to taxi stands to find it. But we just enjoyed the walk. And as we were walking, 
we crossed over, and there we were in front of Notre Dame, and the local people were dancing, and it was just a real Paris moment. It was like the end of summer for a lot of the college students, Mm -hmm. so they were all kind of gathering, just enjoying their bread and their wine. It was just so wonderful to see people out and just really enjoying the sights and enjoying the city. Speaking of that kind of Paris moment and that wonderful outdoor ambience, uh, when you did the bateau bus, the the boat bus going up the river, did you find uh, just beyond the Notre Dame and the Ile de la Cité is a park with modern art in it along the riverbank? Did you find that? Yes. And it's got those little semicircular kind of theaters going out from the river where people would dance in the evenings. And just to wander through there, you kind of go, whoa, this is the non-touristy side of Paris that really is high quality of good life. Oh, it certainly is. And even on the bottom bus, there were young people that had maybe met at college that summer from all different parts of the world, and they were together, they were happy, they were singing, they were enjoying their wine, and I don't know if that's allowed the wine on there, but they were having a good time, and it was just fun to watch people having such a great time. They can have uh, alcohol in the outdoors in Europe and, and get away with it, and it seems to be part of the whole scene. Jeannie, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Maybe I'll see you wandering through Paris sometime. Happy travels. Oh, boy, wouldn't that be great? Bye-bye now. Bye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Michael from Granbury, Texas, emailed us. He writes, My wife and I have traveled all over the U.S. and Europe. Friends are often jealous of us and tell us they just don't have the money to travel. I tell them it's a matter of choice. You give up eating out for lunch every day and instead put the cash toward your dream trip. You also need to decide what's important to you on your trip. Instead of fancy hotels, all we want is a pleasant room to sleep in and use as a base. Some of the best meals we encountered in Rome were paninis from the roach coaches all around the city. Budget doesn't mean missing out. It simply means a different kind of adventure. That's from Michael in Granbury, Texas. And that comment about paninis from the little roach coaches around the town, it's so true when you're in these towns, especially at lunchtime, Look around for the popular sandwich shops, and they're easy to identify because they have long lines, not of tourists, but of local workers. And these people, every day they go out for lunch, and they know where the the place is famous for their salami and cheese and beautiful breads are. Oftentimes they'll serve a a fine glass of wine with it, and you'll eat it standing up or, or sitting on the curb or in a nearby park. And not only are you part of the scene, not only are you enjoying some great local, you know, sandwich cuisine, but you're spending almost nothing. It's dirt cheap, and it's good travel. Beth Ann's on the line in Dublin, Ohio. Beth Ann, thanks for your call. Bonjour, Rick. Bonjour, ça va? <laughs> I was just listening in with the Paris call, and we did spend a few days in Paris, but it was our launch site because then we went to Normandy. And I must say that all of Normandy is worthwhile. You could spend a year there, but Rouen is my absolute favorite. Let's say you have an interest in cuisine. Well, you can be a foodie and just go crazy in Rouen. The prices that you will pay for the wine or the beer, the cider, the cavados, the camembert, it's much cheaper than in many other tourist spots in Normandy. And it's delicious. Well, let's say you have an interest in um, English kings or the Dukes of Normandy. Well, there's a strong history there. Well, let's say you care about the cathedrals and the museums. It's all there, and I'm sure you've been to Rouen. You know, I was just, I was near Rouen in another town in that part of France, and I was working on our France book with my co-author, Steve Smith. And we'd like to go out and have a real nice dinner outside of Paris. And we found for half the price, literally half the price of what you'd spend in Paris for a decent dinner, you can get a delightful highlight of your trip dinner. And let's make sure people know the town we're talking about. R-O-U-E-N. Rouen. It's the hometown of Jeanne d'Arc, I think. or No, that's where Jeanne d'Arc was burned. And that's yeah. a very important part of French history. It's got incredible half-timbered buildings all over the downtown, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. And there's so Absolutely. many fascinating slices of uh, history and culture that you can find, especially in the small towns. Yes. In Rouen, because it's become a major metropolitan center, you not only have that core rich in history with this towering cathedral. I mean, it was the tallest in the world for almost 100 years, I think. Hmm. I would say that of all the many churches and many spires in Rouen, to go only to that cathedral would be a trip in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Because you can do a walking tour 
of the restoration through the years because it's gone through um, bombings and fires and lots of troubles through the years. And it's been rebuilt each time. That's the cathedral that Monet painted at different times (gasps) of the day. And I have a funny story about that. And I don't know if it's true, so we'll have to verify it. Catty-cornered from the cathedral is what we understood to be a ladies' foundation shop, you know, brassieres and whatever. Well, what Monet did was to rent a sitting room on the second floor. And so he was up there for a year or so doing his 30 or so studies of the cathedral. But I thought it was just fascinating that he was over this lady's foundation shop. I guess we could find a joke about that in a moment. But uh, the main thing is that was so important for Impressionism. Monet, sort of the father of Impressionism, he chose to paint the same physical subject from the same angle at different times a day, recognizing that his actual subject for his Impressionist painting was not the building, the church and the architecture and the arches and all that, but how the light and the shadows and the color would play on that building at dawn, at high noon, at dusk, at different kinds of weather. And that is, in a nutshell, what Impressionism is all about. And to go there and to understand that and then to look at those paintings, it is quite an inspiration, isn't it? Oh, it was. There is a museum right there in Rouen, um, the Musée de Beaux-Arts, and it's lovely. But, of course, you don't want to miss all the other centers of art in France. Well, it's a good example of how before you go to France, if you're going to be especially in that part of France, uh, you would really be wise to bone up a little bit on that era of art so you could appreciate all you'll be seeing. Bethann, thank you so much for um, reminding us that two hours to the west of Paris is a city that's well worth checking out, Rouen. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to OPB Radio in Portland and the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for their help today. Learn how you can join us on the air in the radio section of ricksteves.com, and we'll see you next week on Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France... Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French Phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.